Hey, good morning, and thank you for joining us at first for our final week of The Breakfast Club. We've had a lot of fun through this series, and it's honestly been an interesting experience for me because I wasn't even alive when The Breakfast Club came out for the first time, so this has been a whole new introduction to me throughout this whole entire series, all these different characters. But this entire series, we've been living in this tension that we're all pretty bizarre. There's just some of us who are better at hiding it than other people. And the good news is knowing that even though we're bizarre and we come from bizarre circumstances and stories, God is in the business of using bizarre people and bizarre circumstances to accomplish incredible things for his kingdom's cause. And we get to be a part of that. And when you hear something like that, maybe that hits you as good news and you think, man, God really wants me to be a part of this. For a lot of us, maybe that's hard to believe if we're being honest. See, because we think that it's possible for God to use specific types of people, but not others. Yeah, sure, God can use a brain. He can use someone who's really smart. God can use someone who is an athlete or a princess, someone who has a ton of influence in life. And you know what? I think we even all have compassion for a basket case, someone who's had a mess of a life that God has helped have a complete turnaround. But really, can God use a criminal? Can God use someone who's done something so terrible that we think they should be locked away for forever? See, in the Breakfast Club, there's this criminal, a guy named John Bender, who turns out to be the quintessential rough and tumble dude. He's mysterious, right? He's full of intrigue, but for none of the right reasons. He's made a reputation for himself for being this cold, calloused, criminal, a guy who really doesn't have a moral compass in life other than to do what's best for him and for his interests. And so really, from the outside looking in, John Bender just seems like a really messed up dude. And so let me ask you, when you hear that word, criminal, when that word comes to mind, what picture, what image, what person comes into your head? I wonder, is it the basic character package of whatever disreputable person we've met in life who we think, hey, these are supposed to be the bad guys in life, the stereotypes that we point toward and say, hey, that's what a criminal looks like. And if we're being honest, some people come by the title criminal naturally, right? They do terrible things to earn that identification in life. But a lot of the times, if we're being honest, the image that we have of whoever a criminal is in life, it's really just a straw man that we build up that's easy to demonize and tear down. And the problem is we are really good at forgetting this solid truth about people in general. Criminals are human beings just like you and me. See, a criminal is a human being at the end of the day. It's someone who's created in the image of God, who has done something wrong, who's made a mistake. And lucky for you and me, God doesn't forget that. God doesn't forget that criminals are human beings. And so if you've watched The Breakfast Club, throughout that whole entire movie, we hear this story of this guy, John Bender, and we recognize that there's more than meets the eye, the stereotypes that have been pushed his way in life by his classmates and by his weird teacher. See, beneath the surface of John Bender, there's actually a whole lot more there. There's a guy with a really complex past that he actually didn't choose for himself. See, John Bender has burn marks all over his body, but they're not because he's done something stupid. It's because his abusive father has cigar burned him over and over again. See, 
The guy you'd think would sell everyone out just to get a leg up on everyone else. John Bender ends up being the dude who actually takes the fall for his entire classmates when they're all about to get in trouble in detention. And so sometimes what turns out is we write stories for people that God never intended for us to write for them in the first place. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to tell the story of a criminal, a criminal from the pages of the Bible. And what we're going to discover today is this, God is willing to use anyone who will say yes. Let me say that again. God will use anyone who is willing to say yes. Yes, God, I'll trust you, I'll obey you, I'll follow you, even when it doesn't make sense. And so the story of this criminal of the Bible starts with a really rough childhood. He's unfortunately an orphan. And not because his parents were terrible people, but because he grew up in a nation where the leaders of that nation made it their ambition to kill all the baby boys of his entire people group. And so his mom kind of had to cast him away. And the good news for this criminal is he was mercifully rescued by someone who lived in a prosperous political house. And so he caught a break in life. He wasn't murdered with the rest of his people. But he kind of grew up to be this complex guy. He had a really self-righteous attitude by which he approached life. See, knowing who he truly was, but knowing the people he came from, he kind of fashioned himself as the protector of his people, while at the same time reaping the benefits of being a part of the people who were oppressing his own people. And so he grew up knowing that it was wrong what was happening to his people, but not knowing what he should do about it. And so he was all balled up with all this tension in life until one day it reached a breaking point. See, one of his own people was being beaten to death by a slave master. And so checking the coast to make sure it was all clear, looking to the left and the right, our criminal goes off and he murders this slave master, burying him in a shallow grave. And really a lot of us might think he was justified in doing that because we think slavery is an awful thing. And maybe nothing would have changed in the criminal's life. But the sad news is this for him. Word got out about what he had done. And the ruler of the nation where he lived was filled with so much rage that he chased the criminal into the desert, the only place where he could escape certain death. Now, you hear the story of this guy, and if you've been in church for a long time, you want us to really drop the whole act of vagueness right now. You know who we're talking about, right? We're talking about the leader of the people of Israel. We're talking about the person who received the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone written by the own fingerprints of God. We're talking about the man who most scholars believe wrote the first five books of the Bible. See, when I talk about him that way, you might think he's the most holy and spotless dude that we've ever talked about ever before because of his accomplishments or the things that God did in his life. But the truth is, for this criminal, this man named Moses... The first two-thirds of his life, he was known by two stereotypes, by two identities. He was an orphan and a criminal, a murderer. You know, I wonder if we take the time to recognize from time to time that the people that we lift up and honor the most out of almost anyone else in the entire Bible are people who were criminals at one point or another. You know, the King David who wrote most of the Psalms, he was a murderer and adulterer. The Apostle Paul, the guy who wrote half the New Testament, he was a religious zealot who killed Christians and thought he was justified in doing so. The Apostle Peter, the guy who Jesus said, hey, I'm going to build the church on the foundation of your leadership. Peter gave false testimony against Jesus Christ 
himself. And so when you step back and think about all those people, it's pretty incredible that God would use criminals like that to accomplish incredible things for his glory. And so if we take a step back, I think we recognize that we're a mixed bag too. I think we recognize that we're not all perfect. And if we can do that on a morning like this, I think we can recognize that there are two different types of wrongdoers in this room. See, for some of us, and I honestly think this is the smaller portion, we take pride in our wrongdoing. Sure, we recognize that we aren't perfect, but no one is. So no one has room to judge me because they've got their own junk too. And so our goal in life just becomes getting what's best for us, staying up on everyone else, no matter the cost. There's no room for guilt in life when we've only got one life to live. And if we're being honest, the moral compass of this type of people is just doing what's best for us. But I imagine the larger group of us falls into this category. It's the exact opposite of what I just described. We're truly ashamed of ourselves. We're ashamed of what we've done and who we are. And we've convinced ourselves that who we are and what we've done excludes us from the ability of having a relationship with God. How could God ever use me for anything good if I'm excluded from a relationship with him in the first place? See, problem is this. As humans in general, we do a really bad job at evaluating who we are in our relationship with God, where we stand in God's sight. Whether you take incredible pride in the things that you do wrong or you're completely ashamed of who you are and where you've been in life, we're all in equal need of the rescue and redemption that comes in Jesus. And with Moses, we've kind of caught ourselves with the latter half of those two types of people. We've caught ourselves with a person who is hiding from his past, someone who's completely ashamed of who he's been. See, Moses' story, his whole life is all about being on the run from the day he was born, running from being murdered as a baby, running from being murdered as an adult. The man that he killed in Egypt, where he lived, was an Egyptian guard. And Moses, he was raised in the household of Pharaoh himself, the king of Egypt. And he knew that his Hebrew family was being wrongly oppressed and overworked as slaves. And so Moses, he thinks on some level he's acting righteously by killing this Egyptian guard. But when word gets out about what he's done, the emotions change, the shame comes in. And really, at the end of the day, not even Moses' own people really appreciated his kind gesture. And so Pharaoh and his cronies, they run Moses out into the desert, out of the empire, where he would spend the next 40 years of his life in hiding. See, but the problem is with Moses, and I think a lot of us are here too, we don't really take care of our former demons, we just bury them and we try to move on in life. Sure, Moses' life, he moved on a little bit, he made some friends in the desert, he got married, he started a family, he became a farmer, he was raising some livestock, but his past always stuck with him. He couldn't shake the things he had done, he couldn't shake his own personal history. That was all until one day when a massive change happened in Moses' life. See, Moses, he was just minding his business. He was out tending to his flock one day when he saw the strangest thing ever. He saw this bush that was completely submerged in flames, but it wasn't burning up whatsoever. It was like it was perfectly green, but on fire at the same time. And it was really weird, so he decided, hey, I'm going to go check this out. And this is what happens if you want to look in Exodus chapter 3. It's just starting in verse 4. It'll be on the screen as well. It says, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. 
And Moses said, here I am. It continues, do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the land of the Egyptians and bring them up into the land, into a good and spacious land, a land that's flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. And now catch this. So now, go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Talk about a turnaround. Talk about an abrupt shift in life. Moses, he seems to immediately have this healthy understanding of what's going on. He hides his face from God. His God, the God of his people, Israel, was calling to him, to Moses, calling on him, not just to be in a relationship with him, but to be his chosen vessel of deliverance to millions of Hebrew slaves. And it says that Moses fell to his face because what? He was afraid to look at God. You know, Proverbs says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And fearing God, just for your information, it's a really smart thing to do. He's big. He's holy. He's different. He's set apart. He's unlike us. We aren't like God. But Moses isn't just having a healthy fear experience right here. It's a mixed bag. He's also living in a ton of shame. See, Moses, the internal narrative starts rolling Why would you choose me, God? I'm just an 80-year-old man. Yes, at this point, an 80-year-old man just trying to live my humble life in the desert. I've made mistakes. I'm a murderer. I'm a criminal. God, you can't use someone like me. I wonder, do you ever find yourself talking to God like that? God, you can't use me because... What do you put in that blank? What relationship, what past mistake, what word, what stereotype do you put in that blank? God, you can't use me because. God, you can't use me because I'm not a good student. I don't have a 4.0. I don't have a 30 plus on the ACT. I don't have influence with my friends. How could you use someone like me, God, who no one even pays attention to? God, you can't use me. I'm not a good parent. My kids are out of control. They disrespect everyone. They don't listen to me. How could I lead anyone else if I can't even lead the people in my own household? God, you can't use me. I'm a nobody. Haven't you seen my 40-hour-a-week job for minimum wage? No one with these type of income resources in my life gets used by God. God, you can't use someone like me. God, you can't use me. I'm a criminal. I've hurt people. I've taken advantage of people without even caring about the consequences. I've missed my chance, God. You can't use someone like me. Now, to be fair, God was calling Moses to an absolutely incredible task. Not only is he tasked with delivering this message of liberation to the Pharaoh of Egypt, who wasn't going to let his slaves go easily, 
But Moses himself, he's a murderer, and God is asking him to go where? Back to the place where he committed his worst crime, returning to his deepest and greatest regrets. See, Moses, he has plenty of reasons to be afraid and to say, God, no, I'm not in for this. And he had all these excuses ready. If you look in chapter 4, verse 10, this is how it continues. Moses said to the Lord, pardon your servant, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you've spoken to your servant. I'm slow of speech and tongue. And check out God's response. The Lord said to him, who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and I will teach you what to say. And at this point, Moses is getting desperate. He's like, pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. It says, then the Lord's anger burned against Moses. And he said, well, what about your brother, Aaron, the Levite? I know he can speak well. See, he's already on his way to meet you, and he will be glad to see you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak, and I will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you, and it will be as if he were your mouth and you were God to him. But take this staff in your hand so you can perform signs with it. So, like a lot of us, when we're talking to God and we want to make an excuse for the thing we don't want to do, we start with the most bogus excuses first. And so Moses pipes up, he's all like, God, well, you can't use me because I didn't do very well in speech class. You're going to go have to find someone who's more eloquent than me. And God, like he tends to do, he has this really great reply. He looks at Moses and he's like, hey, um, who made your mouth? Oh yeah, that's right, I did. If I need you to speak well or poorly or at all, I just need you to show up, just be there, go. I'll teach you what you need to say. And he figured that would have ended it, but without any more excuses, Moses, he just starts to unapologetically beg, oh God, please send someone other than me. Have you ever had that conversation with God? God, don't send me. Please send someone else. I'm not the one God to fix this marriage. Send someone else. I'm not the one God to fix this kid. Send someone else. I'm not the one to succeed at this job. I don't have the right skills. Send someone else. I'm not the one to love my neighbor. They're too difficult. Send someone else. Send someone else. And so God, he kind of concedes, not really, but sort of, And he gives a couple of assurances to Moses. He's like, okay, I'll send you, but I'm going to send you with your brother Aaron. I hear he actually speaks really well. And oh yeah, take this stick too. I'll do incredible things through you when you lift up this staff. And to his credit, half-heartedly, reluctantly, Moses goes. He goes and he follows God's word. Sometimes I wonder if we realize God doesn't need you and I to figure everything out on the front end when he calls us to something. All he needs us to do is show up. He's going to show up, but will we show up too? I mean, think about it. Think about Moses through all of his past, all of his excuses, all of his mistakes, all of his shortcomings. What God ultimately asked Moses to do is show up and wave around this magic wand that I just gave you. Sound difficult? Not really. This is all Moses needs to do. And so really, I need to ask you and myself, quite frankly, what would God do in your life if you just said yes? What would God do in your life if you just said, okay, 
I'm there. You lead the way, I'll follow. What would God do if you leaned back into your marriage one more time and said, you know what, this has been difficult and emotionally trying, but I am going to continue to put my feet forward. What if you leaned back in one more time to your child and just said, God, I'm going to love this child unconditionally because I know that's how you love me. What if you leaned one more time in at work and said, you know what, God, I feel overwhelmed a lot of the time, but I believe this is something you've entrusted to me and you want me to glorify you in this role that you've given me in life. I'm going to give it my best as if I'm serving you, not as if I'm serving some boss that I have. What if you were to lean back in one more time and say, you know what, God, I'm not going to pawn this off on someone else. I'm going to love my neighbor. And I'm not just talking about the people who live next door. I'm talking about all the difficult people in our lives who we try to justify not loving by distancing ourselves from them. You know, I know you feel unqualified. I know you feel like you're incapable. I know you think that someone with a past like yours is excluded from being used by God. But what if, what if this time you just said, yes, I'll follow you, God. Maybe what he'd do is reverse some generational sins in your life that not a single other family member has been able to tap into and make a difference in. Maybe God would rescue real people in real need that you are the only person he's put in proximity to help this person. Maybe you would impact just one person's life if you just said yes to the calling that God has placed on your life. And if it was just one person, wouldn't it all be worth it? I mean, just look what happened to Moses. He's up against a mountain of opposition. When God sent him back to Egypt, thankfully for Moses, he had this one good thing going for him. The Pharaoh that he had committed murder under his leadership had died, and so they didn't really remember the crime that Moses had committed. But the new Pharaoh in charge was just as stubborn and mean as the one before. So with God's help, Moses foretells this series of plagues. See, because it was never going to be by Moses' power, might, and strength, and wisdom that the people of Israel were going to be rescued from slavery. It was always going to be by God's wisdom and God's power and God's might. And so if you want to know a little bit more about those plagues, you can read Exodus 5 through 14, but a little bit about that for a second. As we watch the story unfold, little by little, time and time again, Moses asked Pharaoh to do the right thing. Let the people of Israel go. See, because the subjugation of any people group in the form of slavery or any more veiled intentional form of impression is evil and wrong in the sight of God. People are created in God's image. And so when we oppress and harm and perform evil against other people, God never stands for that. And he hears people when they cry out to them. And so a lot of different things begin to happen. When Pharaoh won't let the people of Israel go, the first thing that starts to happen is the entire Nile River in Egypt turns to blood. I mean, pretty gross on a hot summer Egypt day, right? Maybe even a little bit hotter than Illinois. But that doesn't work well enough. And so the land becomes infested with all these different nuisances like fleas and locusts and frogs and a massive hailstorm. At its greatest severity, Pharaoh disobeys again and again, and it results, unfortunately, in death. First the death of livestock, and then in the most tragic sense, the firstborn of every household in the nation of Egypt, passes away. And when Pharaoh finally relents, he's like, man, my heart hurts too much. Go, go, go with your people, get away from here. He ends up changing his mind and just chasing behind them in the desert to kill all of them. 
And so let me be clear. A lot of us really struggle, and I have too, with this idea of the plagues. And so we need to know this. God bringing judgment on Pharaoh in Egypt it is an example of a vindictive and spiteful God just working out vengeance and anger on an innocent people. God's judgment against Pharaoh in Egypt is an example of God's insatiable desire for mercy and justice because God is always on the side of those who are oppressed and who have evil perpetuated against them. His word says that he hears when they cry and God will not sit idly by while we do evil things to other people without intervening. But get this, at the end of it all, we get a choice. As bizarre as our circumstances are, as bizarre as we are as individuals, as messed up as we are, we have the chance to say yes to God. See, like Moses, God doesn't want to just turn you from a bad person into a good person, from a criminal into a good person. God wants obedient followers who are willing to trust him at his word enough to say yes And if we do say yes, if we respond to that calling on our life, God is willing to accomplish remarkable things in your life. God may even use you to right some of the worst wrongs that are happening on this planet here and now. But as Moses stands, his his back is against the wall. Quite literally, it's up against a wall of water. Pharaoh and Egypt have chased him all the way to the shores of the Red Sea, and he's stuck. He doesn't know what to do. And that's when God shows up again and this incredible thing happens. In Exodus 14, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. And you know what? That's exactly what happened. A criminal with a speech impediment, stuck a stick out over a massive ocean, and God parted the waters in half. And Israel walked through on dry ground. And God impeded the process of the Egyptian army. And when they ran into the waters after Israel, this is what occurred. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. And with the end of Moses' story, let's move to our time of response. You know, I think it's kind of hard to follow up on that because when I say something like God is willing to use anyone for incredible things, you're sitting here thinking, no, God isn't going to use me to part a sea in half. God isn't going to use me to move mountains. God isn't going to use me to do anything incredible like that. Now, forget the miraculous portion of it. A lot of us are afraid that God won't even use us at all because of who we are, where we've been, what we've done. Man, it is so easy for us to forget that the people that God uses to do the most incredible things are some of the worst of the worst. Criminals. All kinds of terrible people that God has totally turned their life around and used them in an incredible way. And so today, I want to start by saying this. Never put a limit on what God can do through you. I think there's someone in here who needs to hear very specifically today 
that your life is not an accident. That God has known you since the foundations of the world and he loves you and he cherishes you and he wants to use your unique life to breathe an incredible blessing into the world. But will you just say yes to him? Will you continue to let the stereotypes of this life be the thing that you're defined by? Will you allow someone else to speak a word over your life that you didn't choose for yourself? Or will you allow yourself to be who you truly are in God's sight? A child of God. Someone who he deeply cherishes and loves. Still yet, though, there are a number of us where we have a really easy way of being okay with God using us. But then we turn around and we push stereotypes and horrible generalizations onto other people. And so the second important thing that we need to hear today is this. Don't ever put a limit on what God can do through someone else. I know it's really easy to just fit people into a nice, neat little box and just say, you know what, these are the worst of the worst. These are the ones that aren't able to be used by God. But man, my Bible tells me a completely different story. My Bible tells me of the way God uses adulterers, of liars, of thieves, of murderers, and he redeems and reconciles them and uses them to accomplish incredible things for his glory. So let me say it this way. I think that for us today, there's a person in our life that we are close to giving up on. And what God is asking you to do is lean in one more time because God has unconditional love for that person. He wants to use you to bless that person and help them to see what their true potential is. And so what I'm saying is, is what if you just lean back into that relationship one more time? Now, let me be clear. What I'm not saying is that you should return to an abusive situation. God's mercy and grace is good enough for that situation. You need to keep yourself safe. But that person you're at wit's end with, the person who you're convinced you should just give up on, what if God is just asking you to lean one more time into that relationship? Because that's the same type of unconditional presence that he's had in your life. And so today, there are a few ways that we're going to respond. Each week, we celebrate this meal of communion in and through Jesus in his body and blood. God is drawing together a family of all kinds of bizarre people that he wants to use for his glory. And so today, if you consider Jesus your Lord and Savior, what I want to encourage you to do is go to one of our communion stations, take that little piece of bread, take that little cup of juice and partake and celebrate the fact that God is willing to use you in incredible ways because the death of Jesus is sufficient to break the chains of our sin and our past. Another way that we're preparing to respond right now is by giving and responding in a number of different ways. For some of us, that just takes, that looks like taking that little connection card, folding it up, and whatever decision we've made on there, just dropping it in the give and respond boxes. We'd love to walk alongside you in life. But for a number of us today, we've come prepared to give generously because we believe that God has entrusted people to our care in this very region of the world where when we pool our generosity together, God will reach more and more of those people for his glory. So if you're prepared to be generous today, you can use this time of response to drop that gift off in the give and respond boxes or to pull out your phone and use that give app that we've been on ramping to give and be generous to the mission of Jesus through First Christian Church. But one more thing that I think we need to do is pause and intentionally put ourselves in a posture of surrender before God and just say, God, I'm giving up. 
I'm dropping the act. I'm dropping the shame. You can use me for whatever you're calling me to. And so if that's you, we have these prayer benches that are in front of our stage today. If you just need to, in a posture of humility, kneel down and say, God, you can use me for whatever you need to use me for. I want you to use this time to move and respond by doing just that. And what you'll recognize is that all the shame that you're balled up in, that you think excludes you from a relationship to God, pales in comparison to the abundant and never-ending mercy and grace that is found in Jesus. And all you have to do is say, yes, God, I trust you. I trust your son, Jesus. I trust in him that he's sufficient to redeem and restore me. And so in all those ways that you can respond, what I just want to invite you to do right now is to stand for a moment with me as we prepare to respond. At the end of the day, we all have an opportunity. We get the chance to identify ourselves by the words that have imprisoned us in life, the chains of the stereotypes that have been pasted our way, whether that be an athlete, a brain, a basket case, a princess, or even a criminal. Or we could drop those nasty words, we could drop those chains, and we could be who we truly are through Jesus, children of God. Let me say a word of prayer and we'll move to respond in just a moment. Jesus, we are thankful for your all-sufficient grace. We pray thanks that you stopped at no lengths to reconcile us in our relationship with our Heavenly Father. And so today we come before you asking you to remove the shackles and chains of guilt and shame that have imprisoned us for far too long. There's a word that has been spoken over each and every one of our lives that has spoken condemnation and it's spoken a false identity to who we truly are. I pray that you'd lead us to yourself in this moment and that we would truly identify with you as our Lord and Savior, whether that be for the first time or fresh and anew today. God, help us to see ourselves the way that you see us as your children through faith in your son, Jesus. So we praise you in the name of Jesus and we respond now in his name. Amen.